Go ahead and pick your speed up your number one now, runway 27, clear to land green dot. Welcome to Oshkosh, guys. Hello and welcome to the Green Dot, EAA's podcast for anyone and everyone who loves aviation. The Green Dot, sponsored by GE Aviation. I'm Hal Bryan, and I'm senior editor here at EAA in Oshkosh, Wisconsin, and I'm one of the hosts of the Green Dot, and sitting here with me on the left, it is... I'm one of the other hosts. I'm Chris Henry, the EAA Aviation Museum Programs Coordinator. And uh, somebody snuck into the room with us today, Chris. He's sitting there across the table. Why don't you tell us about him? Uh, absolutely. And just for the record, uh, when he showed up, it literally dropped 20 degrees here. So <laughs> you brought the cold with you. Yes. <laughs> well, that was 20 degrees Fahrenheit, That's too, true. <laughs> which is, I think, either 1,000 or 6 <laughs> yeah, degrees centigrade. Yeah, it's Blame 6, Canada. degrees colder here. Blame Canada. And cue the song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, anybody who's a fan of the TV show uh, Ice Pilots uh, will be familiar familiar with Scott Blue. Scott, uh, thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me, Chris. Good morning. Well, thanks for coming. And uh, we're gonna, we're, if for anybody who's listening to this, uh, it'll be after the time, so you'll have missed it. But uh, Scott is actually here to take part in the speaker series here at the museum. Happens every third Thursday of the month. Shameless uh, plug there. But, um, but luckily, we've recorded this podcast, so if you couldn't make it, uh, you'll have something to listen to and hear about your adventure down here. And we should be doing a video of the speaker series as well. That's yes, that yeah. usually goes up within a within two or three weeks or so of the event. So yeah, absolutely. Evidence, great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Evidence, Evidence of your yes. visit. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, you know, being uh, being a foreigner as you are, mm -hmm. the, you know, our our quaint U.S. laws must be uh, quite charming to you. And, oh, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> Everything's been nice. I, you know, we didn't get pulled over on the drive from Milwaukee. It was fun. And they let me into the country, so I'm already winning. Well, that's that's good. Now the question is, will they let you out? But uh, <laughs> you, you, you never know. Canada may not want me back. <laughs> yeah, <there is laughs> that. If they're scanning passports these days, I'm in trouble. We're always looking for good people. So yes, very yes. good. So welcome. <laughs> All right, Scott. Well, let's uh, uh, let's do what we always like to do on the show. Let's go back uh, back to the beginning. Um, we were having having these great conversations right before we went on about uh, about some of the Zucker movies. So when I say back to the beginning, I'm immediately thinking, well, first the Earth cooled, yeah. <laughs> uh, then the dinosaurs came, but not quite that far back. Magma. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Magma. Thank you, Mike Myers. I'm sorry. Thank you, fellow Canadian, Mike Myers. But let's go back to uh, a little bit uh, closer to your beginning. How did you first get into flying? Were you a kid interested in aviation? Was was something you're around at all? Did yeah, you I, I always liked airplanes when I was younger, and uh, you know, even going back when I was a kid, we used to go down to Florida every year. Uh, we had a condo down there, and I remember one year I was getting into radio-controlled airplanes. And the magazine my mom bought for me. We weren't. We could see it in the store, and then it was in a holding pattern until we actually started the drive. Entertainment for the kids as we drove down. And right. then I'm a little older, I get it. You know, why can't I see the magazine? <laughs> It'll wait. <laughs> <laughs> and then so we started driving down. And funny enough, I still have this old radio-controlled model airplane magazine. And on the cover, it was the CL215. Oh no! And kidding. there was an article about a guy that made one going in and out of the water, like radio-controlled one. But then the actual picture of it was there, and it sort of, you know foreshadowed several <laughs> decades later when I actually got into that, you know, in my career. But yeah, I always liked airplanes and cars and anything with an engine. And, uh, you know, I, I went to university after high school and I finished my degree and uh, happy to say I have a B in geography, but it wasn't really leading me into anything. So, you know, I started doing a little research and, you know, hey, I can still become a pilot. It's not too late. You know, I was in my mid-20s and, uh, you know, gave the military a shot. Didn't work out because I was a little tall. But, uh, yeah, just started chipping away at the flight school north of Toronto. So you mentioned uh, you mentioned being uh, just too tall uh, to, to fly in the military. So you're 6'7". You're yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And uh, um, that's, that still seems sort of... I, 
I, I guess I get it, but it still seems sort of strange to me. Like this in the, you know, whether that was the late 20th or early 21st century, that something like that, that, you know, you're, you're smart, you're obviously a good pilot, all, all these other qualifications, but I'm sorry, you just physically don't fit in a cockpit. How do it seems amazing to me that we can't well what figure was amazing to me is that it it because of the you know red tape and the way that the hiring process goes is it took several months for that to be established whereas on the very first day i was asking am i too tall and they'd be like oh, i'm not sure how's your eyesight i'm like it's fine <laughs> but like am i too tall to do this job and at every step in the process i kept asking and basically well, i don't know ask you know down the line and by the time i got through all the simulator checks and the background checks and the 2 hour interview where they ask you about some pretty Intense stuff, being, you know, you're signing up for the military. Sure. Past all that, everything was A-OK. And then I went for my full medical and, oh, yeah, you're too tall. We'll do everything else on you. And, like, we're talking top to bottom, everything, like x-rays, eye checks, you name it. And at the end of it, I sat down with the flight surgeon and he's like, OK, well, you're too tall. What else is wrong with you? Nothing. Nothing else is wrong with you. How did you get here? Oh, <laughs> and I'm like, nobody, nobody would give me a no. And so I just, he's like, OK, well, tell you what, come back next week and we'll measure you again. <laughs> what, what do they expect is going to happen in that well, week? I, I thought they were just going to put me in an F-18 and eject me over northern Alberta. So right. spine compressed, lose an inch, and then way to go. That didn't happen. It's... So I showed up the next week, and they, it was interesting because they had the height expert, and they plotted me out, and they really measured everything. And they had a chart, green, yellow, red, about the different machines in the Canadian military. And, you know, red, it was no-go, and that was for helicopters and the F-18s. It just wasn't going to happen. Yellow was sort of like, oh, it might work, and, you know, some of the other training planes and some smaller machines. But then green, it was wide open for the Hercs and the C-17s, oh, and okay. uh, we call them the Aurora, CP-140 Auroras, but P-3s that we have. Sure. And I was like, cool, I'll fly that stuff. That sounds great. And they said, well, no, thank you, but uh, if you're not able to do everything, then it doesn't work for us, so... Thanks for coming out. Oh, wow, well, that's that's amazing to me because you know we've uh, you talked to people over the years who have been determined to you know to sort of get into the military, military and do flying and things like that. And you hear stories of people who said, you know, they were told no up front, and well, then they then they fought it. Or you know, going back far enough, it's like, well, you can't do it because of your eyes. Well, you know, the doctor leaves the room, they memorize the eye chart and get in. Sort of, but but those are people who are usually sort of told no at every step. But I hate to to indulge the stereotype, but maybe maybe this was uniquely Canadian because you could not find anybody to actually say no. They We're just, too polite. Right. We don't want to offend. Right. Sorry, you're too tall. Yes, exactly. I'm offended. Well, I to say it. You're, you're still quite handsome, however, but I'm afraid it's the it's the height. It's really, you know, it's the rest of us are too short. We're sorry. It's, 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 you know, it's not you, it's us. We're going to have to adapt the whole program to fit people like you. Right. <laughs> Jack up the doors with all the subways. Cars are going to have to be bigger to be imported. We'll make it work. It's just going to take a little while. <laughs> oh, that's fascinating to me, though. It, 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 you know, it, 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 it is what it is. You know, and there's nothing I can do about that. And it's been something I've had to deal with for my entire career. I couldn't find, fly certain airplanes at Buffalo. I was too tall for DC-3s. I uh, couldn't fly 152s for the training that I did. But, hey, I'm here now. Gameplay employed as a pilot. And, I mean, it is interesting. I'm flying a Dornier 228 in the winter right now. And <laughs> my knees are pretty much in my chin. <laughs> Crosswinds from the left are interesting. But you make it work. Well, that's something else that I find especially interesting, though, is that, uh, you know, if you look back, you look on the career that you've you've had so far, and you're still a young guy, um, but you've flown some amazing things. You've had these incredible experiences, and it, who knows how that would have, uh, how the career would have played out had you gone into the Canadian Forces and and got, gone a completely different direction. I'm sure it was, would have still been rewarding, but 
but uh, maybe you would have had a, a, a very different and, dare I say, less fulfilling career to this point. It, it's, it's tough to say. You know, it really, you know, life gives us these paths and you go down one and another one disappears and you can think about all the hypothetical ways it could go. I mean, maybe, you know, it could have been flying C-17s all over the world, you know, and seeing sure. it in that regard. Or, I mean, the chopper thing was out and the fighter jets were out. But, you know, you, you never know. And, you know, I'm happy with the path that's ended up. And, uh, you know, once the one door closed, it's like, okay, well, you know, Time for next one. Just keep, keep keep moving. So, but yeah, it would have been it would have been interesting, I think. But hey, I'm happy how it worked out, and you know, lots of adventures up north, and <laughs> yeah, to say the least. <laughs> it's been well, fun. And a, a few minutes ago, you mentioned you know your flight training that you were too tall for the for the Cessna 152. Um, can you tell us about your flight training? What did you train in, and 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 how did that all go? Sure, absolutely. Uh, I went to a flight school north of Toronto called uh, Toronto Airways, an uh, airport that's uh, based at uh, well, Buttonville Airport. Which oh, is now. I've flown in and out of Buttonville a couple of times, yeah. Okay, well, enjoy it because they keep saying it's going to close. It's oh. going to close and it's been bought by developers, and Uh-oh. but it's still open. It's just, it, they keep delaying it, but it will eventually close, I'm sure, which Uh-oh. is, uh, yeah. Disappointing. The aviation community is not happy about that in Canada. Um, but uh, so I went up there and I started chipping away at it. And it was funny, my first instruct, uh, flight instructor is a lady named Heather, and she's about five foot one or five two. So she's putting a phone book behind her back in the 172 and cranking the seat forward and up. <laughs> Meanwhile, I'm going down, back, and trying to kick a hole in the side for some <laughs> With your head out the sunroof. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, they had to mod it for me. But <laughs> so it was, uh, yeah, lots of 172 uh, was the primary plane I trained on. And then, I, uh, then my twin engine stuff was on a Piper Seminole. Um, and uh, I valley parked in Toronto to pay for it all the whole time. And uh, so that was fun. There are some other vehicles, you know, getting in and out of small spaces. So um, adapted with that. And uh, it took took a couple of years. I was more uh, working, you know, to pay for it all. And then when I was done the flight training, I wasn't in any debt, which is, you know, rare, you know, Very these days so. with flight training because it is, you know, very expensive. Um, had a lot of fun with that. And, uh, you know, just yeah, flew over mostly Ontario, a little bit into Quebec. Um, and yeah, some great instructors at a wonderful time, uh, checked off all the boxes and then it was resume time. <laughs> so how did you decide to go to the Northwest territories? Was that purely for, for work or is that where you wanted to end up? I'd been to Northern Canada when I was a kid. I did a canoe trip in the, the Yukon, which is a territory next to the Northwest territories. And it intrigued me, the, the spell of the North, I guess, as they say, and Previously, the year before, I'd actually researched Buffalo and found through a friend of a friend someone that worked there and got kind of the low and dirty about, you know, what it's like working there. And I, I wanted to do it. I wanted to fly the World War II machines, you know, while I had the chance, you know, um, because as time goes on, you know, less and less of them are flying. And I was intrigued by it. So when I finished flight school, it was resume time, as I said, and it's not like it was now. There, it was a little bit harder to get a job as a pilot. And, you know, you send your resume out and you'd work on the ramp for a couple of years and then you get the chance to, you know, get into the right seat of a plane. So I sent about 40 resumes. Two people got back to me. One of them was Buffalo. So I started exchanging with the lady there some emails. And, okay, well, I fit in the planes. Oh, yeah, you'll be fine. You'll be fine. Just come up. Just come up. <laughs> You've heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's, it's only about a 3,000-mile drive from Toronto to Yellowknife. So <laughs> in my 100-horsepower hand-me-down Saturn wagon. <laughs> it's a bit, a bit of an undertaking in that. Um, and uh, so, yes, yeah, so it, was, it was a no-brainer between that and the other opportunity I had. I was like, nope, that's it. They'll have me. I'm making it happen. And uh, yeah, I just started packing my bags and getting ready for the Cross Canada Drive. So tell us about that first day 
So you 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 make it there yeah. <laughs> in your in your Saturn. Uh, what happens? You show up. Uh, you show up. Well, well, the first thing that's kind of funny about the whole thing is it was delayed by a week because I got to a point in Canada just past Winnipeg where the Trans Canada breaks into two. One goes south of Calgary, one's north of Edmonton, and I was calling my friend about what the update was on the ice road to cross the Mackenzie River in the Northwest Territories because at that time to get to Yellowknife, you either had to take a ferry in the summer or the ice road in the winter. But there are the change of seasons where the ice melts and you can't drive across and it's too thick for the ferry to go in. <laughs> so it was either absolutely haul, like chug the Red Bull and drive 24 hours straight and try to make it in time, which wasn't going to work anyway because they'd close the roads at that point, or maybe detour to Calgary, visit a friend for a week and then head up. But So I knew at that point I was going to have to ditch my car for a month. So I got to Hay River, so I didn't quite make it to Yellowknife. And first night I met uh, my friend uh, Gordon Ian, we're flying the Sked at that time. And the Sked at Buffalo was a DC-3 that goes back and forth to Hay River, or did. And uh, yeah, so I walked over. I said, hey, how's it going? He's like, okay, cool, cool, cool. Come on over. We'll show you the airplane. And I tried to fit into a DC-3 and no. <laughs> it was not going to be possible. So but I was like, well, I made it this far. I guess I'll just <laughs> hang out for a bit. I was going to say, you might as well stay. At yeah, least, right? absolutely. And, you know, I met Joe that first night and then that was the experience. For some reason, he, he thought my name was Scotty Bluestein. Um <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure, <laughs> but anyway, he, he, was, he was kind and nice and welcoming with a handshake and I had a brief interaction with him and went out with my friend Gord that night and, uh, you know, we hung out for a little bit and then the next morning, boom, I'm sitting on the ramp in Hay River and out of this, like, it's sort of strange, it's almost like the mist. I mean, I think it was a perfectly clear day, but I see this giant green monstrous plane come in, crackle, bang, pop, and, you know, the flames are shooting out the exhaust as they chop the power when they land and it was a C-46. I had no idea what a C-46 was. I mean, it's on the Buffalo <laughs> website. It listed it. And I was like, oh, that's just a typo. It's a C-47. Like, what's a C-46? <laughs> I was oblivious. And this monster came out to load up freight at 6 o'clock in the morning. It's like, wow, this, this is kind of neat. Um, and then so they came over and I helped them load. And then uh, the, the guy turned to me. He's like, oh, yeah, you coming to Yellowknife? Yeah. Well, get your stuff. We're leaving. So I ran to my car that I was abandoning for a month, grabbed the one suitcase I thought I needed. <laughs> but these people that didn't even know my name <laughs> ran over, threw my bag inside the C-46. I, I don't even think I was sat down before the one engine was starting up. We're taxing out. We take off. And, you know, for those who have ever flown a C-46, it's deafeningly loud on takeoff. Like, you have to use hand signals because, yes, the engines are loud, but it's the props. They're moving so quick that oh, they sure. pass the speed of sound, and it's just deafening. And so the guys are using hand signals, and I, you know, I'm sure I had some, you know, David Clark on, and you really need noise canceling. We took off, we got up to level, and the one fellow turns to me, and he's like, uh, he's like, "Hey, Sean? No, no, it's Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. You want to fly? <laughs> That's Mr. Bluestein to you." <laughs> Basically, <laughs> and, and so I, I was like, "Yeah, sure." So I sat down in the first officer seat, and I look over, and the captain kind of looked at me, angles off to the left, and <laughs> smokes a cigarette. <laughs> and they took control of a C forty six, and they still didn't know my name. <laughs> well, I was to like, be fair, what? you didn't know this airplane existed. <laughs> well, that's true. Like, you know, ten minutes earlier. <laughs> yeah, yeah so you're standing up for her, being like, "Oh, you're gonna fly me, and you don't even know what I am." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. I hear you. So you got a lot that, to prove here, Sean Bluestein. <laughs> Basically. So that was uh, that was yeah, that was my first morning. <laughs> wow. So when you slide into the right seat and you take control of it, are you um, 
you know, you said the captain leads over and lights a cigarette and everything else. Is, this is uh, this is a different sort of airline experience that from what a lot of people might expect. Are you are you taking that yoke and saying saying uh, this is fantastic? I think I'm going to be right at home. Or are you raising an eyebrow saying, "Am I sure I'm in the right place here?" <laughs> well, I think it was overwhelming. I think it was all of that and more. I, you know, I remember flying it, and I, I think I was decent at flying the heading. And, you know, I wasn't like going off track too much, but I couldn't hold an altitude where to save my life because I was just so scared of pushing back on this monster. <laughs> and, and did you have any uh, tailwheel experience, any sort of vintage airplane experience? Oh, gosh, no. Point? Gosh, no. But, but to, to, to be clear, to be clear, they were only letting me fly straight and level. I did, well, sure. I did not do the takeoff and the landing. Right. They're, they're not that silly. <laughs> but even still, a big old vintage airplane like that, like compared to something like a Seminole, you're, you're, you know, you're leading with rudder. I would assume it's 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 needing bootfuls of rudder even in turns. It's, well, the, the, the you're not necessarily used to. Maybe not with the C forty six. C forty six in flight is just a wonderful machine. Um, she she flies gracefully once you get the feel for it, and you know you can crank her over, and it's 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 a great machine. Once it's airborne and the gears up and you got some <laughs> speed, anything close to close to you know ground or takeoff or you know crosswinds is she she's a handful to wow. to put it mildly, but. Uh, um, yeah, it was it was awesome, and uh, you know, definitely part of me was absolutely hooked right after that. And then, of course, being Buffalo, the place that it is, later that day, oh, go for a flight on this DC four that's going up to a <laughs> mine site. None of it. They, they, you know, they want to they want to get you hooked. You know what I mean? Sure. They want to you know get you interested in the airplanes and uh, intrigued by them, and it worked. That's uh, that's just amazing, absolutely amazing. Now, anybody that's a fan of the show or has watched this knows that. You have to earn your spot to fly, and that usually starts off in a lot of cases with working the ramp and being a rampy. Um, what's that experience like being a rampy in those crazy environments and in hard work and in, in cold weather? Uh, what, what's the life of a rampy like up there? Uh, it, well, it goes without saying. It's a lot of hard work, and you have some long days uh, with some cold hours. Um, it's fantastic training for like management of an airplane and, and time management and learning what needs to be done first. You know, like you show up and the plane needs to be swept, fueled, heated, loaded, uh, and you really need to start getting going on the timing of what needs to be done first. So it's like first thing first, fire up the heaters, get the heat on the engines, you know, cause that's going to take some time, right? And then you start working on the wings, making sure they're good to go and what kind of deacing you need to do that day. Um, you know, and then you deal with the fueling and then, you know, the cargo. So really you need to start prioritizing what comes first and, and that, and, uh, you know, you also have to, you do your homework, you know, the night before, if you got an early flight, you know, you're not going to have much ground support, you know, like, you know, you have a little bit, but you know, most people show up at seven or eight in the morning. You got to make sure the fuel truck's full. Like if you show up the next morning, the fuel truck's empty. Well, you know, boom, now the flight's delayed another hour, you know, or uh, it's not plugged in. Well, now it's going to take an extra hour to heat the engines. Like you really... It is good training for for recognizing what needs to be done and total total management of getting the flight going, um, you know. But it's a lot of hard work, and you learn a, a pile of trades. I learned how to drive a forklift. I learned how to drive a fuel truck. I, um, you know, learned how to tow airplanes and what what are the critical steps. Like, don't forget the tailwheel lock on the back of the C forty six because those rings are really well irreplaceable. <laughs> so if you snap one of those. Just drive home. <laughs> Get and back in your Saturn. I, yeah, and, and I don't mean home to yell that. I mean, head south. <laughs> um, so it was certainly an experience. And, um, you know, then it's a few years on. It's like, 
I, I couldn't imagine doing that, you know, level of, of work again. But I mean, I'm glad I did it, and uh, you know, helped mold me. So, about how long uh, did you spend sort of doing the ramp stuff? I mean, since you're, you know, you're in the right seat of the C146 within five minutes of showing <laughs> up, and then, and then it's like, is day two? It's like, okay, you had your fun with the airplanes. Now start I'm start lifting and freezing. Weekend. Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, no, it's uh, you know, as as you progress and you're on the ramp, like when there's enough people around to cover for you and you don't need it on the ramp they will put you on flight so you start getting a feel for the airplane and even if you know you're just in the back watching you know sure. because obviously we, we wouldn't do any you know training on revenue flights it's, if it's a non-revenue flight at the end of the day you could do some training but um you're just getting a feel watching how the guys are operating and that sort of stuff um it was 13 months and the answer to your question the long way around wow. is uh, yeah 13 months before i was checked out in the c46 it might have been a little bit sooner had i been able to fit in the dc3 but um yeah it was 13 months before i was on the, the c46 flying that and when that uh you say you're doing training like maybe on non-revenue flights or you know the end of the day after the revenue flights are done is that how the majority of the training goes or is it do you get to a point where you say okay it's time to transition from being a rampy to actually flying as a co-pilot uh is there then a you know, we're going to set aside a couple of weeks of a formal training program, or is it you just you just keep building it up as you go? Oh, you, well, you're building it up, um, and it's also making sure you have your 250 hours because you're coming out of flights to get 210, and you oh, need sure. 250 hours in Canada to hold what's called an IATRA, which is basically a two-crew license, kind of like a junior ATPL, if you will. Um, but no, but when it gets time to actually get checked out, absolutely, you're doing you know proper dedicated. Training, I, I, I didn't mean to suggest you're so. not doing proper training. I just didn't know if it was we sort of stop everything and say, okay, for this week, these are, you know, you're doing nothing but training or is it still just that buildup of I'm going to, you know, I'm going to do it at the end of a revenue flight. I'm going to do it here, do it here. Do you get to sort of stop and say, I'm going to focus on nothing else uh, uh, for it, training, it, it, final it, it, training period? You, they want you to start reading when you're on the ramp of the plane oh, sure. that you're likely going to get on and, and doing a background. Um, but those flights tended to happen sporadically based on what was going on um, and in the big picture of the company. In the summer when good friend of mine that worked there basically said summer ops are kind of like a vacation you know what i mean compared to winter ops which is true there's so much you know, fuel the airplane and go you know <laughs> or loaded as well of course but you know none of the heating and the sweeping and that sort of thing um so you're doing the odd training flight like just you know to have a feel for it keep you interested keep you going um and then when it's time it's like oh there's a seat open okay it's time to train you and it's like Hope you've been reading for the last six months because <laughs> your test is tomorrow. <laughs> no, it's not quite that bad, but uh, you know, be ready. Be ready for a checkout basically at any time, because oh, really? you know someone could give two weeks' notice, and it's like, well, that seat's got to get filled, so sure. get get ready to go. And uh, you know, then a ground school gets done, and uh, you know, then you get into the dedicated flight training, do your flight test, and then you start your line dock. Wow. So I, I know I keep uh, hitting the harsh elements uh, factor, but uh, uh, I've always thought that was interesting. What are some of the the hurdles you've had to overcome as far as, you know, operating the aircraft in those types of elements? I mean, not, not just icing, but you know, when the aircraft are shut down for that long, uh, you know, you're using these old radios, radials with a ton of oil. You know, can you tell us a little bit about some of the stuff you guys have had to do and, and some of the extreme operating conditions? Uh, well, they they have to be plugged in, and that's just to keep them from getting um, completely cold soaked. You know, so at every night when you're plugging in a C46, for example, there's five plugins. Uh, there's one each for the, the heaters on the, uh, 
on the oil tanks, about 36 gallons. So that's like a little heating pad, Alaska pad, we called it. So that keeps that relatively warm, maybe say five, 10 degrees. In the engines, you know those little 1500 watt ceramic heaters that you might put by your feet if you have a cold house sort of thing? So each one of those is in each radial engine and that's going constantly. And that just keeps them from getting too cold. And if you use the engine tents properly in those, down to about minus 10, maybe minus 15 if there's no wind, they might keep everything warm enough that you could start. But the engine's the next morning because a radial engine has a start temp limit of about four degrees, four to five degrees. Um, colder than that, they just they won't. The, the, the engine, the, the oil congeals too much and they get too grumpy and it's just it's just bad for them. So after that, then you get up with these things called frost fighters or Herman Nelsons, which are fuel fired industrial strength, 350 to 500,000 BTU heaters. And then so you got to get those out and you just start blasting the heat. You put one duct on the oil tank, another duct inside the radial engine, just keep it warm and keep them warming. And it's really, that's the heat management to get them started. Once they're running, they actually handle it quite well. Of course, when you're descending at those temps, you're very slowly descending and you're, you're, you're chopping the power very slowly as you do your set. There's certainly no, you know, chop and drop because you're going to start cracking cylinders, you know, from the heat management. So, um, but in terms of like, you know, sit there, you idle the airplanes, you go do a run up, you wait for your proper temps, you know, 40 degrees are rising on the oil and I think it was 120 on the uh, cylinder heads. And once you get that, they're, they're quite good. You know, you just you got to manage your, your cowl gills, make sure they don't get too cold. But uh, once they're running in the air, they're pretty good. It's just on the ground. If you land somewhere and it's minus 40, if there's no wind, you can put the little donuts just in the front of it. If you imagine the donuts that sit in the front of the radial engine that block the hole, that's usually okay. But if there's wind, okay, you got to put the tent on, the donut, and then the tent as well, um, or vice versa. And you just got to keep the heat from dissipating. So it really depends on the winds. It really depends on the temps. But uh, heat retention is key. <laughs> and, and on your body, too. I mean, you want to dress for it as oh, well. Sure, so. yeah. <laughs> probably helps to take care of the crew uh, as yeah. well as the airplanes. Although I, I guess I don't want to be the one to go to Joe and ask which one is uh, is more replaceable, you know, <laughs> person or airplane. But uh, you mentioned a, a name a moment ago. Was it Herman Nelson? Herman uh, Nelson, yeah. Herman Nelson. Who's uh, that, he? What's that? That, <laughs> Again, uh, that is the name for, for gas-fired heaters that are the operated in the Arctic. Okay. And they're, they can go without electricity. So they sure. fire up with a little gas-powered engine, blah, 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 blah. And then you can adjust them and how much fuel they're burning. And they're fantastic for incredible amounts of heat. Like you can get them so hot that you can melt parts, but they're not used much anymore because they can get so hot that... that <laughs> heat causes other problems. Um, so if you're if you're stuck somewhere, that's what you want is a Herman Nelson because it'll independently start. It'll create incredible amounts of heat, um, but you don't see them too much anymore. Now it's mostly what are called frost fighters, which are you have to plug in electrically, um, diesel fired, and uh, you know they they kick out some heat too, but not to the same extreme as a Herman Nelson. Is is that a brand name? Is that just named after? Is is it was the first guy to use some kerosene to accidentally melt some parts was Herman Nelson? And I, I, that's I, what we call these. I it's think just, it's the brand name. I, just, to, to be honest with you, I don't know because they they weren't. You couldn't go out and buy one in any of my time up at, at Buffalo. Really? It was all the the older versions that were sitting around back oh. or you know up at some of the places that we would go. Um, so I, I, I don't want to sound <laughs> naive or not doing my research. I, I'm not sure. We can make something up. You know, like yeah. Herman was Nelson say, was the first man to go, uh, yeah. you know. <laughs> he was, well, he invented Canada uh, yeah. in the 1800s. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, he was our first prime minister. He's <laughs> the first person to bring kerosene to the Northern <laughs> yeah. Territories. Uh, I will be, I'm going to ignore the rest of the show. Chris, you've got it from here. I'm going to be Googling this. I just, <laughs> I'm just sort of fascinated. But it, it's like, What's it, Scott making up today? Yeah. Well, it, it, if I were up there, 
and you said, hey, how we you know we're going to fly one of these airplanes. What do you think we should use to heat the engine? Uh, the Frost Fighter or Herman Nelson? The Herman Nelson. <laughs> and it's like, as much as I like the sound of it, Frost Fighter seems like a pretty clear choice in that uh, in that situation. So I, don't know, I don't know Herman. I've never never met the man, I yeah, guess. But we'll, anyway. He was like a father to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry, Chris. I didn't mean to offend. <laughs> I mean, Frost Fighters are interesting in their own right. Like they, Buffalo did a very good job of modifying Frost Fighters to deal with the extreme cold. Like They're great until about minus 20, and then they just start cycling because they're not retaining enough heat to even their sensor to be like, oh, now blast the heat because there's a fan. There's an oil-powered section, then there's a fan to blow it off of that onto the, the airplane. But if it gets too cold, it, just, it warms itself up and it blows air for like two minutes and then it shuts off again. So you're not getting constant like uh-huh. hot air flowing. So they were modified at Buffalo with um, you know, some certain ducts to cap it off at certain points and, and then they would just run hot air you know, all <laughs> the time. So, but they, even then, they, they, at really cold temperatures, they, they do take some time sure. to warm up. Can you tell me a little bit, I know you, you and I were talking last night and uh, can you tell us a little bit of the story of trying to turn the airplane on the ice and y'all couldn't? Uh, I mean, <laughs> yeah, that, <sure. laughs> that, yeah, that was in Ontario. Um, we were delivering uh, mostly fuel to mine exploration camp in Northern Ontario, a place called Coper Lake, which was, well, first off, it's a frozen lake. Uh, so, <laughs> and, and if my memory serves me correctly, I think is you need two feet of ice for DC-3, Three feet of ice for C-46, four feet of ice for a DC-4, and five feet of ice for a Lockheed Electra. So that's that's how thick it has to get. So mo- most of the ice trip work is is late in the season because, of course, it takes a while for the ice to generate. I think approximately it's a, an inch a day at minus 30 degrees centigrade is how ice builds. Um, and then, of course, you can flood the ice, which they do in the ice roads up north to create east ice quicker. Um, but so what happened there is we were going to that uh, late in the season, I think it might have been April. And if you went early in the morning, it was okay because the coldness of the night before, everything's refrozen. But as the day went on, the ice kind of got a little slicker and slicker and slicker. And you really had to factor that in, of course, with crosswinds. We didn't have a crosswind or anything that day, but um, we went, dropped off our supplies. Everything was okay for the landing. And then if you have some momentum, of course, you'd be okay to go around the corner. But as we went to the end of the runway and had to do a 180, the left tire just started locking up, just sliding, 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 sliding. It didn't work. So we came to a stop. We had our uh, mechanic uh, slash you know, helper, I guess, with us. And uh, he jumped out and he put a chalk in front of the left tire. And still, it just pushed the chalk, pushed the chalk, pushed the chalk. So at that point, uh, the left engine was shut off and uh, captain hopped out to give a hand. And I was in the right seat watching the radios uh, and just with the right engine just boop, 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 ticking over. And you could see they're down there, and they jammed the chalk in front of the tire, and then the chainsaw came out. <laughs> and, and Jimmy, Jimmy Azaray, God rest his soul, who was our, our helper that day, and he, uh, he, he was just hacking away at the ice, and chunks of ice were flying, and it, perhaps some chunks of rubbers. He came up with the chainsaw, and he just digging down into the ice, and he just basically took bunch of two by fours we had in the back and jammed them into this hole that was right in front of the chalk so that the wood stuck in the ice would stop the chalk from moving and the chalk would stop the left tire from moving so that then we could keep the right engine running and pivot the airplane around you know so that we could then 
get back out, remove all of this, fill in the hole a little bit with some snow, <laughs> and take off in the wrong direction. Like, like it was okay with the DC-4 that was there at the time because, you know, it was a tiller wheel, right? It could turn itself and it slid a little bit. But, you know, the, the C-46 is just all directional power control because it's a giant tail dragger. Right. So, it, so you lock off that left brake and put, you know, a little power on the right, and if it doesn't want to turn, well, you have to get creative. <laughs> so we did. <laughs> this elaborate production was like... To, to most pilots, turning around on the road means a little pressure with your left foot. Yes. <laughs> and there's there's no chainsaws and two-by-fours and shutting engines down and people getting out. And, and wonderful men who jump out and start hacking away at the ice with chainsaws. <laughs> oh, my gosh. That is just amazing. So uh, so at, at Buffalo and, and just throughout your career, you've had the chance to fly some... Uh, some amazing, some enviable, uh, enviable airplanes. Um, this is a terrible and a cruel question, but but let's let's call it a two-parter. First of all, do you have um, do you have a favorite in terms of what's being the most comfortable because of uh, because of your height? Would that be the C forty six, or is there is the two fifteen? Two fifteen. My one friend calls the two fifteen kind of the. Uh, uh, the amphibious Chesterfield. So uh, Chesterfield. A bishop Herman Nelson reclined yeah. on a Chesterfield, <laughs> you know, yeah, having no, a cigar. The, the, the 215 and, and the 415 now, they're wonderfully comfortable airplanes in that regard. They're, you got leg room for days. Shaquille O'Neal could fly it. Um, you know, you can adjust the rudder pedals by about a foot. The seat moves the track about, you know, two feet. Um, it goes up, it goes down, it reclines. You can jack up the lumbar support and the thigh support. Yeah, it's... It's a wonderful airplane for for the cruise legs, and you know when you need that much comfort because you're it's such a physically demanding airplane because you're throwing it around so much when you're fighting fires. You know we're doing forty takeoffs and landings in a four-hour mission, so My you gosh. really need to be uh, you know sitting there having fun. So, uh, so the the second part of that would be broader, and that is as you look back on your career, setting aside sort of you know maybe the comfort aspect of it. Uh, do you have a favorite overall? I, you know, I, I think it, it has to be the Ducks, you know, and the Ducks being the, the 215s yeah. and then the 415s. They're, uh, it's a fun type of flying. Um, you know, as, as you've seen on the show, there's a lot of work involved in loading freight in the winter. And, you know, planes move stuff around. This is what they do. They either move people and they, or cargo. Well, the cargo has to be loaded. The cargo has to be unloaded. It's effort. Either people or machines are doing a lot of work to get that on and off. People, they require effort as well. They need management. They walk on. They walk off. Sometimes they're not happy. Sometimes they're sick. You know, sometimes, you know, there's a whole bunch of factors with people. There's stuff to be done. So the planes kind of turn into these little prima donnas, I guess, as you will. You know, everybody's <laughs> catering to the needs of the plane. Oh, you need fuel. Oh, you need people. You need cargo to pay for yourself. I get it. Whereas, you know, a water bomber, you know, we touch down on a lake. 15 seconds later, the cargo's loaded. Then we get off the lake. There's a little button on the yoke. We hit that once. Cargo unloads. <laughs> so the plane does all the work. Next, next the thing you know, you're turning it around without a chainsaw. Yeah, there it's, you go. It's, so easy. It's, 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 it's the fun. It's the fun part, you know. It's uh, and that's like the work of those airplanes. That's the fun part. So. So what was that transition uh, like moving from, uh, you know, cargo and passengers then into actually the firebombing? Uh, well, well work? Buffalo Buffalo was a, a great spot for that. And they gave you the opportunity to get into fire suppression with, you know, um, relatively low time compared to what you would do if you just walked on the street to a normal fire operator, fire suppression uh, operator. Um, so you basically, you, you pay your dues and, and you work for a few years. And I think it was, it was about 
three and a half years after I was checked out and uh, four years since I was at Buffalo until I had earned my stripes um, to be able to get checked out on the 215. And my first summer, I was kind of an on-call. And then after that, I did fire in the summer for three summers. And then I'd work for Buffalo in the winter after that. So they need to have enough people coming in to make sure that, you know, your spot could be taken on the C-46 for the summer. And then, you know, go fly the 215 for the summer and then come back to that in the winter. So um, it was, I always wanted to fly the 215s from the moment I got to Buffalo. I was just like, look at that awesome yellow and red plane in the corner. Isn't that pretty? And it goes back to that magazine you you were talking about as a kid, the hobby shop and everything else, right? Yeah. That's yeah, yeah. Did you do seaplane training any like specifically independently before you started getting checked out in the two fifteen? I needed. To, I flew down to Kelowna, which is in southern BC, mm-hmm. and I did my my float plane, uh, got my float rating, and then with that on your license, then you're legally allowed to you know operate a, a water bomb in the summer with, of course, all your other accumulated hours. Um, and yeah, so I just got my float plane check out, and here you go, go fly a a, a boat. <laughs> flying boat if you will and you know they it's interesting oh great you got you know you got your float planes ticket that's awesome now forget how to fly a you know, float plane and we're going to teach you how to fly a boat because <laughs> it is boat. quite different oh, I'm sure <laughs> but lots of fun so fly, flying the 215s uh, and you said and 415s correct so you're flying both uh, and during the fire seasons are you uh, are you sort of strictly western canada because i know a lot of times in intense fire seasons assets get deployed sort of up and down throughout north america we share things back and forth yes well i, I worked for buffalo up until the spring of 2016 on the okay. 215 um, and then i moved on to uh, the newfoundland and labrador government which is extreme east canada like oh, as far okay. as you can go it's like we can wave at basically europe over there you know it's, <laughs> it's only about a four-hour flight um so i uh, I, I left the 215s at buffalo and I was I was sad to leave them, but they were replacing the fleet up there with a, another type. And um, due to my experience and my size, um, I didn't I didn't want to fly the machines that they were getting in the future. So it's another opportunity to stay. And fire suppression came up, and I and I took it. Um, so the two fifteens was at Buffalo was yeah Western Canada. We went down to Alberta a couple times and Saskatchewan, um, mostly the NWT. Um, and then now that I've been in Newfoundland, we've been in Quebec and all over Newfoundland and time to time we'll go, you know, further West depending on the fire needs. But yes, the assets are shared all over the country based on, on the needs. Sure. So. Wow. You know, one question I had, I, I wanted to ask and I, and, and I forgot to put it uh, in our queue here is, uh, you know, what was it like trying to just do your job and fly and having, you know, cameramen and, and. And people kind of follow you around. Was that kind of odd or uh, what was that like? It certainly took some getting used to. Um, but, you know, hats off to all those camera guys. They were, they were great. Um, I'm still friends to a bunch of them to this day. And um, they, they they were doing their job and they were just wanting to film. And, you know, they sometimes would be a little bit in your face um, and that sort of stuff. But you could just either just not speak <laughs> <laughs> or you could give them a look you know and which makes for terrific television <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I sit here yeah. with a smug grin on my face you know arms at my hips <laughs> um, although I will yeah. say stony silence is actually worse on a podcast even uh, than it is yeah. on television you don't yeah. want me to replicate that, uh, <laughs> let's, that look t- <laughs> Ty, let's, uh, let's take 20 minutes of, of quiet and just uh, kind of go into experimental mode here see what the audience thinks of that <laughs> and it failed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, they were, you know, it took a little getting used to, but it, it was also, it was funny because they'd be filming, 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 and they, you know, 
for every thousand hours of footage, you know, maybe 20 minutes ended up on screen, right? And so I just film, 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 and you know, most of it went to the trash, and some of it, you know, ended up on TV. And not that it was bad filmmaking or anything. It's just, you know, you, you know what aviation's like. Thousands on hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror or right. at least interesting stuff. <laughs> interesting <laughs> stuff. <laughs> for, for their purposes. So, yeah, they, they, you know, they were good guys. And, you know, they, I remember I fell and I hit my head once. And, uh, you know, the, the camera guy came over and he's like, Scott, Scott, are you okay? Yeah, yeah, Paul, I think so. He's like, okay, are you sure? I'm like, I think so. He's like, because I really want to film this. So if you're okay, I start you know, pulling out my camera. And, you know, I don't think there's any blood coming out of the back of your head. but you know. The show must go on. <laughs> you know, it's it's funny. Like when, uh, Chris, back when we did, uh, we did a couple of episodes. And we got to revisit that topic of some of our favorite aviation-related TV series, movies, and things like that over the years. And, uh, you know, Ice Pilots always always ranks highly. And I, if I remember right, we, we talked a little bit about one of those shows about how of all the uh, the quote unquote reality TV series out there, you know, Ice Pilots has always sort of stood apart for me in terms of of you know generally avoiding the temptation for sort of too much manufactured drama and things like that. That as you know, as that genre goes, it's pretty straightforward. Was there? Uh, and then I want you to I don't want to put you in an uncomfortable spot, but was there ever an episode where you watched where you sort of uh, if if you even watched the show, uh, did you ever frown after the fact? Well, that's not how that played out, or they kind of blew that out of proportion, or did you did you feel fairly treated? Uh, no, they're they're pretty good to us. Yeah, I remember talking to the producer. He was up in Yellowknife, and we were watching like season two, and there was an episode about you know a C forty six breakdown, and you know it was I was just like, you could, why don't why don't you just ask me to come down and edit this because you're showing the one plane's broken down in uh, Norman Wells. Meanwhile, the same plane is being pulled out of the hangar to go rescue it. You know, <laughs> so the, the paint jobs are different. <laughs> you know, but uh, that, that's just for an aviation geek. You know, someone who worked there, they'd really catch sure. that. Um, you know, but uh, no, you know, they were they, they they did a good job. They were nice. They nothing was manufactured. You know, if, if if something looked on television that was a little bit strange, like something's amiss and I don't really quite get what's going on, we would recreate the same scene. Like if something happened and there was a camera behind us and we were, you know, watching the dials and they record something, something happened that day, but they wanted our facial expressions, then let's say a week later they'd be like, okay, this is what you said. Could you please wear the same clothes and have, you know, same beard growth and haircut and... We just want a different camera angle for that scene for the public. Sure. Um, but there was no extra lines thrown in or extra dramas. You know, it was uh, um, it was legit. I mean, sometimes the time frames got a little skewed. Like if something would happen and, you know, in a completely different related story, then it would go back four months and then it would, you know, jump the other way. Um, but, no, yeah, it's... It was what happened, happened. And they did not ask you to uh, do multiple takes of falling and hitting your head. <laughs> okay, Scott, let's take that again. But this time, let's make it look like it really hurt. Yeah, absolutely. And, and today also, we're going to get you to throw rocks in the engine, okay? We need some more excitement. Yeah, so just lean out that window and throw it in the intake. We no. can't just keep having successful flight after successful flight. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Those those four IQ points you have left, we need those burned out for this episode. You know, Brain cells, main cells. We need viewers. No, they, they, they were they were good guys yeah that's well that's good to hear well i'm uh, looking at the clock and the time has flown by as they say but uh i think we are uh, just about to the uh, to a good uh, wrap-up spot for this episode so uh, uh sean bluestein <laughs> scott scotty blue, blue. <laughs> scotty blue 
<laughs> Whatever. Um, <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time to join us. We also, of course, appreciate you making the trip down to speak in our museum as we're recording this. That's tonight. But uh, uh, once this airs, it will have been in the past. So I, I guess we're talking to the future right now. Do you have any messages for future Scott? Uh, future Scott. Keep having fun. <laughs> Stay smiling. <laughs> that is good advice. That is good, good, good advice. All right. Well, Scott, thanks so much again uh, for for joining us today. This has been just a fun and fantastic episode. Really excited for the talk tonight. Thanks to everybody out there who's listening, and especially those who take the time to send us feedback, which you can do feedback at ea.org. You can comment uh, on the uh, uh podcast episodes when they go up on our blog at inspiredidea.org and a big shout out especially those of you that take the time to uh, leave us reviews i made a note uh, right before we came on and i something i think we ought to do more of is uh i want to say hey to uh, steve t58 and uh, somebody named lieutenant shrek our most uh, recent reviewers on itunes both gave us uh, five stars and said nothing but kind things uh that actually means the world to us i can't overstate uh the value that we place on the reviews and the feedback that's the only reason we're able to continue doing this show so thanks to you guys thanks to everybody else for listening uh thanks to our new friend herman nelson who i will be googling for the rest of the day and i know him as herm Herm. (laughs) well i suppose you knew him before it was cool too oh he wasn't cool he was hot (laughs) i asked for that i begged for that well well scott thanks to our new hipster canadian friend for joining us and laying it all out there Thanks to all of you out there, and we'll catch up to you again next time when you're cleared to land on the Green Dock.